Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Dream those dreams, and then man up, woman up, and live those dreams, because a life without dreams is black and white, and the universe flows in technicolor and surround sound. Bam. The great has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, tonight's the second night of Hanukkah, and we have a present for all of our listeners. Guess what it is? Wait, how many nights in Hanukkah? Is it <laughs> eight? Does it move from great, from better presents to worse presents, or does it build up? Because that would influence my guess. That depends is- on the Jew. That's Jew relative. <laughs> Did you get me some? Some real guests like Peter Singer or... Uh, no, it is our very bad wizard's favorite guest, Paul Bloom. It's your fallback. <laughs> it's your fallback. It's when, when Peter Singer cancels. When Sam Harris gets the flu, I get the call. <laughs> Paul, you're up. You got nothing better to do. No, no, no. Like, it's the opposite. Like, we don't want a lot of these people who we don't... We don't know their vibe. Uh, That's right. And we know you. We know yeah, you. you know he, you know you have the same dirty, inappropriate sense of humor. <laughs> well, uh, well, thanks for the introduction, Tamler. I'm, I'm Paul Bloom. I'm a psychologist at Yale University, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm very happy to be back here. And yeah. um, uh, Paul, Paul, as we've mentioned in the last four or five episodes of our podcast, you recently won an award in Zurich. Um, so you're, you're swimming in, I see you're wearing a big gold chain. You have some new diamond studs. Um, uh, I assume that's the Jacobs Foundation money. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big dollar sign hanging around my neck. I have, <laughs> I have a bodyguard and a driver and everything. Okay, it's honest to, question. It's spread out for five years over research, but I'm going to blow it all in three months. <laughs> <laughs> honest question. Um, uh so I know you guys are looking for a postdoc, but but do the emails really? You know this all this work on how lottery winners are are never as happy as they think they would be once they win the lottery. And part of the explanation is that they get people coming out of the woodwork um, asking for money. It, have you gotten people wanting to collaborate? Just sort of cold cold emails, like wanting to set up a besides <laughs> me. Well, funny, yeah. Oh, you, you are the only one who really <laughs> made a point of, of 
approaching me several yeah. times about collaborating and using my research funds to pay for your summer salary. But, um, but besides that, no, people have been treating me with respect. and uh, They've been as standoffish as normal. As, as, yeah, as, as, as avoidant. As, as a, I did have to explain to some members of my family that this actually was not a big cash award. Um, it's, this, it's, it's research funding. But I'm, I'm actually seriously grateful uh, uh, to the Jacobs Foundation for funding, for funding this research. They, they, you know, they're a great foundation. They have a lot of money, and they fund all sorts of fun stuff. So this will be uh, work that Karen Wynn and I are doing um, on um, uh, moral development in children, some stuff, some stuff with adults. So a, a collaboration with you is not, is not out of the question. Right. And we are actually looking for a postdoc to start next year, next fall. And, and an ad is out on Twitter. But if, you're, if you have a PhD in, in this, you study children, um, please be in touch. Roy Moore studies children. <laughs> non- he's, he's, lo- he's looking for employment so Tamler after the election he's doing so badly he's polling in the teens <laughs> you know the Jacobs Foundation also um, Jacobs. I, 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 Jacobs Foundation they, um, they awarded they gave another award um, uh, it's to called research and, yeah research and practice award and it, and it was for this this Dutch group that does um, amazing work with African children who have been somehow embroiled in war, like all these kids who who have PTSD because they've seen violence or they've they've engaged in it or they've been war torn, and they showed this amazing video of the work they do, and. Uh, I can probably speak not only for Paul, but for every other academic researcher that when we saw that video, we were like, <laughs> what do we do again? <laughs> what is, what have I done in my life that's worth anything compared to, to the work they're doing with actual small children who are yeah, suffering? The, 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 the charity is called War Child. And after I saw their film and their presentation, I wanted to get back up on stage and say, look, I'm just going to give them my money and so they can help. But help you didn't. Children. But I sure didn't. Because there are questions about children's understanding of consequentialism and indirect causality that really, really need to be answered. It's really the present questions since time immemorial. I gave a speech, uh, a short speech about this research. And in it, I drew upon very bad wizards. On the, on the flight there, I listened to an episode where you're talking about, I think, Thomas Nagel yeah. and different forms of value. Mm-hmm. And I used that in my speech. I talked about, um, you know, the scientific research that, that me and people, a lot of people do, um, has practical value, but also I think has real intrinsic value. So in some way, I think War Child has a lot more practical value than my work. Right. But, but there's something important about knowing how children's minds work. And it's possible that that will also have practical value. I mean, talk about practical value. Didn't you convince somebody to give up their kidney? Yeah. Oh, some yeah. Guy on Twitter. Gonna, that's right. Um, some guy on Twitter uh, uh, said he read my work and then gave up his kidney. But not is, out of empathy? I don't get it. <laughs> like <I'm, laughs> He became, I think, consequentialist or, or, or anything like that. Uh, that is like the nicest thing I've ever done, which is not doing anything myself, but convincing somebody to do something really nice. <laughs> your kidneys are safe and sound in your, in your body. But, the, the, yeah. the, the other influence um, I've had on somebody was also expressed on Twitter many years ago after I published my book, How Pleasure Works, where somebody got... Um, a tattoo of John Milton's quote about pleasure, and they had, and they said they got the, they got this tattoo based on my on my book. What's the quote? The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a hell of heaven, a heaven of hell. Wow, yeah. not a bad tattoo. 
That no. quote might not be. That's from memory, but roughly that. I have that Nagel quote now tattooed on my dick, but yeah. uh, if I didn't, I might consider that one. <laughs> this is, this is uh, one of those unfalsifiable claims. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can falsify it for you right now. I can pull a Louis C.K., I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, Tamler. <laughs> so before we, we get to our main segment, we're going to talk about Paul's m- most recent New Yorker uh, article on dehumanization. In I praise it, of dehumanization. In, in praise of dehumanization, yes. <laughs> you, you might have thought it was bad, but it's actually the best thing you could ever do. Um, <clears throat> my my it, career, by the way, seems to be telling people, whatever you thought was bad is good, and whatever yeah, you thought is good is bad. That's, that's, yeah, we, we've, we've caught on. We've caught on. Yeah. We, we, have, we have a list of suggested articles um, <laughs> for for future publication, but I thought it would be fun to really quickly. I know we've tackled this subject to death, but um, Paul, you and I are are reasonable people. Rational, um, we rational. We we are sensitive. We're, we're reasons responsive, as they say. And um, wait, we wait, have wait a minute. like what? What about me? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I didn't yeah. say you weren't. And we've had this discussion about the Star Trek transporter and what it does. Yeah. And um, and we've talked about this uh, in one episode about the prestige and without spoilers, sort of the similarities to the Star Trek transporter. And I put up a Twitter poll a couple of months ago um, simply because I was perplexed that so many people seem to disagree with us um, about what happens when you when your molecules are completely disintegrated and there is a blueprint taken of you at, a, at an atomic level. And you, you, quote unquote, you are recreated in another place. You and I and many people think it's murder and a clone is recreated. And I was surprised at how many people didn't seem to think this. We, we got a ton of email um, about, about how wrong we were and about Derek Parfit or something or other. Yeah. And uh, so I put up a poll on Twitter that said, the Star Trek transporter works by disintegrating you at point A and recreating you from a blueprint at point B. If available, would you A, hop in with no problem, or B, avoid the murder machine? We got 866 <laughs> votes. That that sort of biases the responses, <laughs> no, that's I think. No, what, that's what people think, that it biases it. But if you really <laughs> if you really were the ones that disagreed with us, you would you would say, that's bullshit. Stop calling it the murder machine. You hop in with no problem. That you're, You have an available answer. Hop in with no problem is just as biasing as avoiding <laughs> the murder machine. But anyway, this is totally scientific, well, well, uh, well executed, <laughs> sampled um, from a representative sample of Twitter followers who care about Star Trek. 65% said they wouldn't get in. 35% said they'd hop in with no problems. So the question is, what's wrong with those 35%? So, now, 5% might be suicidal and admit. Yeah. Right. So I, I was talking about this with uh, Christina Starmans, who... who um, has very different intuitions than I do. She's a was a student of mine. We both we all know her. She's now a prof, uh, assistant professor at University of Toronto, and she says there's three stages of transporter <laughs> understanding. The first stage is you're just like moronic, and you think, well, it looks like you, so it's you. What's the problem? Right. And the second stage is where where um, uh, Dave and I are. Dave and I are, and and which is we understand it's a murder machine. But the third stage is very fancy. It's sort of a parfait idea, which is you're skeptical about personal identity in the first place. Right. So you think, well, yeah, when you go to sleep, you're a different person when you wake up. 
if that doesn't bother right. you, or if you have a coma, or even you know you shut your eyes for a long moment, what makes you the same person over time? Well, the answer is nothing. And so you have a general skepticism of personal identity, and then you come out the other side. So what's the big deal about a transporter? Right. right. And so, like next year, what's the like? Uh, I have right. very few of the same molecules. Probably, I don't know how many molecules. <laughs> You're I have. a regenerating machine. <laughs> yeah, I, that that maybe I have ninety eight percent of my same molecules. I have no you idea. Sh- you shit a lot more than I do, man. <laughs> You're supposed to take six shits a day, apparently. <laughs> You should so average par- six. Argument so if you only honest. take like four shits one day, you need to make it up by having eight eight shits the next day. Uh, uh, sorry, but I didn't mean to derail the conversation. So I, I get I understand that. So if you're skeptical about personal identity, then you know what's what really is the difference there in what sense all the felt continuity between me when I go to sleep and me when I wake up is still going to be there. So why not get into it? That's, that's the, that's the most sophisticated version of what the 35% are after. That's, yeah. It's like um, Kohlberg's elusive stage seven. You have to like, be, you be, you know, <laughs> you guys are stuck at utilitarianism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm stuck at, yeah, exactly. We're, we're in this intermediate stage. We're not, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not woke when it comes to personal identity. <laughs> screw, <laughs> screw you, Christina Starmans for putting me in the middle stage. I mean, it's, there's a crucial difference. I mean, it's, there's, you know, there's not two of you when you wake up the next morning. <laughs> right. But, this but, is what I ask people. I ask people, would you mind if somebody, you know hit you on the head with an axe and they typically say yeah and then i say so who cares what happens after your head's been chopped off and dismembered who cares they create another person right and then and then you know your response differs if you're stage one or you're stage three but to me i find i don't want to die if somebody wanted to murder me i'd be very upset what happened after i'm murdered is of little interest to me so there's actually, you know, one of the one of the responses that personally bothers me the most is an accusation that I'm a dualist for, for oh, having I this intuition. There, it, there's yeah. a psychologist, um, oh, what the hell, Andre Simpian, who I had a discussion <laughs> with. And, and he just said, he was describing his transporter research. And it, and it came to my surprise that he simply assumed for the study he was doing that, that the view we have is, is a dualist mistake. Oh, it's like a measure of dualism. It was like, yeah, it was like a measure of dualism and, and you know, low intelligence, low cognitive <laughs> Well, it is. It's arrested development, right? <laughs> so it's, why it's actually, isn't it a dualist? So what, why isn't it uh, obviously that you guys are dualists? I mean, I agree, I'm, but I want to hear you articulate it. Because what I'm saying is my identity, myself, isn't some immaterial soul. It's this brain that's between my ears. It's a very physical thing. Destruction of that is a bad thing that wipes out me. But it's a, it's, it's, it's a confusion to think that um, if I'm a materialist, I have to accept that if you build a brain um, you know, in another country that's, a, right. that's, that's identical sort of physically to my own, it has to be me as well. You'd that's have not, to be like the, the, the hardest core of functionalists, like the hardest core of functionalists. Right, the hardest core functionalists. That's right. Yeah. So by the by, if people who hold our view, I think, think the idea of uploading your mind onto a computer is just incoherent. Right. I actually think that the confusion in this case, as in many philosophy thought experiments, is that it's under-described. That we don't exact, that we don't get 
uh, what what that really entails because we don't understand consciousness. Right. Fair I mean, I, there there are some in between things that you know, n- not not unlike the studies, Paul, you've done with ship of Theseus type transformations, where I suppose yeah. if you could actually physically move one brain molecule at a time or one one nerve cell at a time, um, you would be left with sort of a, a puzzle. I mean, yeah. even with the split brain experiments, <clears throat> where you, um, uh, Gazaniga and others, where where they realize that when they cut the corpus callosum, the the bundle of nerves that unites the two hemispheres, that it seems as if there are two different individuals residing within the same body. Um, those pose some some interesting problems for identity, right? So if you were to take one hemisphere and put it in another viable human body, yeah, um, would you would you now have two of you? Um, and there, there are honestly some difficult problems of personal identity where, yeah. you know, intuitions fail us, where they lead us into contradiction, but someone that someone chops my head off, that this is a bad <laughs> thing for me, isn't a subtle case. And, and <laughs> people, you, people just get, I, I think I'm worried that stage one people and honestly, some <laughs> stage three people get confused by the fact that you, sh- one person shimmers and then the camera whips over to another and there's more shimmering and <laughs> And, but instead of shimmering, the Star Trek transporter should just like have something, have you know, a guy wearing a mask <laughs> chop you to bits with an axe. Just stab you. That, I bet screen. that would make just, a difference. Just to make yeah. the point. <laughs> yeah, I bet that would make a difference in terms of how people responded to it. But like, I mean, you so have it, to make it clear that you're unconscious, you know, to make the cases <laughs> parallel. You're yes, unconscious, right. so you won't feel it. The, the transporter assumes that, that, that the machine could copy all the information about you. And then, um, and then you know, beam it down or, or whatever. Given such a machine, why don't all the characters in Star Trek do backups of themselves every day, every morning, put themselves right. up on the cloud or something, so that they they never have to worry about dying? It right. would change and the it, show substantially. Yeah. yeah. Know, so, when, it, so when they stop by Rigel Twelve for shore leave, <laughs> they could oh just back themselves up on there. So if if you know if the Enterprise is destroyed by the Borg, <laughs> then okay, well they got backups. Yeah, they got new sleeves, <laughs> yeah, like a Dropbox. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Star Trek um, Dropbox. You know, uh, if if the tra- if the transporter machine works uh, by by taking a perfect blueprint of you at time one. Um, and creating you at time two, then, in fact, you would you ought to have no phenomenal. You ought to have zero memories for the in between time, because you are recreated only with the instructions of your brain before the transportation took place. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, One of the great tragedies, I think, of I don't know human <laughs> history is that you didn't become a philosopher. You would have Aww. loved being a philosopher. Just even time one, time two, like that <laughs> terminology, like you, you're all over it. You're like nipples get hard when you, when you start. <laughs> that's, quite a, that, you, you, that's a serious compliment. <laughs> I, I, the, the two of you are getting along, and I like that. <laughs> uh, I want to I say one last thing about this. This is as, as somebody who was raised in a religion that believed in res, physical resurrection, right? Um, Seventh-day Adventists believe that that there is no separate soul that goes to heaven, but that at the end of the world, when God decides to take the good people up to heaven, he resurrects you physically, which presumably is recreating you from the molecules. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how you would do it, um, but, but presumably he has some instructions about you specifically. Um, 
and I remember it bothering me. Um, and I and I know it's bothered other people who there are people who I've talked to who believe this and therefore don't want to be cremated because they actually are worried that <laughs> that this would somehow pose a problem for recreating yeah. you physically. It wouldn't be you anymore. And that would be that would be such a ripoff if like the resurrection it wasn't you. Like all this yeah. stuff. <laughs> or or I think some religions and it may be Orthodox Judaism is one of them, I'm not a hundred percent sure, don't like organ transplants for oh, a similar yeah. reason that you know, God when when it's the end, God just can't find all of you. You know, he's just like, right. you know, you know yeah. he goes into the grave and he, he doesn't have to schlep all the way over to some other, other, you know, place. I can part the Red Sea, but God, I can't find this guy's fucking kidney. And then, and then like, right. And then so he has to go in and take some kidney from a person who's just alive. In, in this case, a non-Jew. Yeah. We had this conversation, right, about uh, one of the things I'll, I'll never understand is the Buddhist notion of reincarnation because it doesn't seem to involve either psychological <laughs> continuity, like that you have memories of yeah. that person, or any physical continuity. And yeah. yet it is somehow still you, you know, in your many lives that you're going through on your path ultimately to enlightenment um i think it's honestly incoherent and yeah. i think for for a religion that gets the metaphysics so right sometimes it really is a flat-out dualist conception of, yeah. of an immaterial soul that has somehow isn't you but is you and so on bouncing from you know the next dalai lama yeah but it's the worst kind soul. of dualism it's the kind of dualism where you don't even realize it's still you your essence right it's yeah. like Every once in a while, somebody might claim to remember a past life, but is that is that really? Like but this, the only? I mean, like no, even the Christian conception: you okay, you go to heaven or you go to hell. It's you, like you yeah, have right. memories right. of who you That's are. Right. If it's not you, then who cares? That's like, right. in what's in what sense can it be that yeah. I used to be somebody else, but yeah, right. I have none of their personality or traits or intelligence? I, I guess I guess there may be issues of karma. Like all yeah. the good things that happen to you are that, – that's your co- continuity to like you being a good person last life or something like that. I guess I, so. I yeah. hate to say this about a religion, but it seems hand-waving. <laughs> and also, how do I know that my karma – like – well, I, I guess maybe I – my previous life, there was some unique amount of goodness that connects to me or something like that. I don't know. I always took it as systems justification, just like the people who were at the top cast, like, like just wanted to feel as if somehow through millennia they had worked their way up there. Yeah. I think, by the way, that the tests of the Dalai Lama, when you go around and look for children who's the next Dalai Lama, um, at least in one case, uh, they brought objects that were owned by the previous right. Dalai Lama and saw if the child could recognize them. Right. But, you know, to be truly scientific, you would need like 100 objects and <laughs> No, and I, I worry they pee hacked their way. <laughs> they they totally pee hacked. They found this the new Dalai Lama pee hacked his way to the <laughs> holiest place. You know, it was, it was, pee, was point oh seven, but he said it should be one tailed. You know, <laughs> hey, three out of four objects isn't bad, guys. I don't want to go around any more houses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's say we had a directional prediction and just go home. <laughs> All right, should we take a break and then come back to talk about uh, Paul's latest New Yorker contrarian piece? Yes, let's do that. Yes. And then you love me. 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this point in the podcast, we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for all the different ways they get in touch with us. We've been getting a lot, of, a ton of great emails, great iTunes reviews, some funny tweets, and our Facebook page has been stellar as, us- as usual. And the Reddit page, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards, is picking up, I think it has over a thousand people on it right now. Um, Instagram, you can also follow us on Instagram. And email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us, at Tamler, at Peas, at verybadwizards. And if you would like to support us in more tangible ways, there are three ways of doing that. And we are so grateful. We can't even describe how grateful we are for this, especially at this time of year. Um, One way you can do it is, let's say you forgot to get a gift, an expensive gift for somebody that you still want to get to. This will come out on Boxing Day. But if you want to get them a gift, go to our support page first and click on the Amazon link and then buy that expensive gift on amazon.com and we will get a a small cut of that. You can also PayPal us a one-time donation. We've gotten Mm -hmm. some really nice donations recently on PayPal in in several different currencies, yeah. right? Yeah, our, our international listeners, thank you so much. I know Patreon isn't available to everybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, really generous. Can't appreciate. I can't, it's hard to express appreciation in ways that don't sound repetitive. But, right. but fuck if it's not just heartwarming. <laughs> and then our Patreon listeners talk about being grateful. We are so grateful to our Patreon listeners. Um, you can support us patreon.com slash very bad wizards at a variety of different levels. We're still now we're about to have our end of the year conference about the state of the podcast. And I think we will have some, some good new ideas on how to thank our Patreon listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, right now there's a loot newsletter with our recommendations at one level, a, uh, a, a volume of Dave Beats, which he teases. Which I know. This is, it's definitely going up. It's definitely going up <laughs> over the break. Uh, it's taking me a while. Um, but yes. And I don't know if people know the secret um, uh, $10,000 level, which is uh, you get to watch Tamler shower. Yes. Have we made that public? <laughs> Or I'll watch them shower. I'll, you know, $10,000. You just just get a picture of Tamler looking at you. In the shower. Just for the bathroom. With your thumbs up. Um, Or you can have my dog Omar look at at you in the shower. I feel like that should be the $15,000. That's the $15,000, Omar. Um, Yeah, so we really appreciate it. Our $5 and up listeners right now get to select a topic for... Well, everybody gets to suggest topics for episodes, and they get to vote on a topic from the five finalists. And last time we did this, we had, I think, our most downloaded non-Sam Harris 
episode ever um, on intelligence. intelligence. Uh, right. And it became a two-part episode. So we really appreciate all of you. Thank you so much. And um, And now, before we bring Paul back on the podcast, both of us have just finished the third season of Mr. Robot. We've gotten a few emails and tweets asking us if we're going to devote some time to discussing it. Um, neither of us knows what the other thinks about it. We haven't talked about it. So this will be the first time that I find out what Dave thinks about it and he finds out what I think about it. I'd say we've gotten surprisingly few people <laughs> ask us about <laughs> That's right. whether we're going to do it, making me think that not as many people watched it. So we'll keep this spoiler free, I think. Right. Yeah. So this will be spoiler. Yeah. It should be spoiler free. And maybe if we if we do whatever we decide to talk about it, um, we can just have it as a, like an addendum at the end of yeah. of an episode. So what'd you think? <sighs> I thought it was good. I thought it was definitely better than season two. Yeah. I was amazed how little buzz there was around the show restarting. Like, I found out the day. And yeah. I, and then I texted you, and you didn't know either. I had no idea. No, I know. Yeah. I'm, there's something about the the energy went down um, about the show. And, yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, I agree with you. It was, it was stronger this season two. In in ways, and we we'll talk a little bit about it. In ways that I think make it less buzzworthy, but in ways that I appreciate it. So, what do you mean? So, again, we'll keep this spoiler free, but <clears throat> yeah. So, I think that there was a lot of uh, more character development and and just good good filmmaking um, this season in, in a way that I appreciated the art of the show. I think that, that, um, like, I think he's perfecting the, uh, what's his name? Sam, um, Sam Esmail is, is perfecting his directing abilities. And I think that this was the strongest. Um, there were some episodes that were just beautiful. I mean, just, just, I mean, there were before. Yeah. I, I think but, that's been a constant, even in season two, like the yeah. things that I didn't like about it didn't have to do with the direction. They had to do with the story and the plot and the various yeah. twists and just getting tired of the whole Mr. Robot Elliot relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I think that, that there's a little bit, a little bit of fatigue about, uh, uh, and about what's going on. And, and I found that it was hard to maintain the pace, the, the suspense, the level of suspense and mystery is hard in this season because I don't know so much of the excitement for the first two is trying to figure out what was going, especially the first trying to figure out what was going on. And I, I don't know that you can maintain a show at that level of intensity with, without getting gimmicky and without getting to, to twists that are. So I think character you know. development was the way to go um, because yeah. it really can't stretch to four to five seasons. And I'm starting to think it might be four now. Uh, I, I think, I think, haven't they decided it's four? I mean, in no, some ways. He, said, he, he originally said five and now he's saying four or five. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be smart. Like there's, there's, there's something I admire about British TV series that they have an end to yeah. them. And this this can't be. It will ruin it if it's. I think if it goes to five, um, yeah. in many ways it could have ended, right? Um, in this when it in did. this season, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's still some unanswered questions, uh, and I and I don't want to. 
I don't, it would spoil it to say what they are, but um, I, they they involve White Rose and yeah. what exactly uh, right. she's up to. But um, yeah, so um, here's two just meta TV show things that I that this season made me think about. Like, I thought I enjoyed watching virtually every episode. There were a couple episodes, especially early on, that I. Uh, I, I, you know, they were testing my patience a little bit yeah. in the way that season two did, but then it really picked up steam and it had a one episode in the middle. I forget if it's five or six where it was like all done in what seems like a single take, a like rope, right. rope, like, it was like a rope. Take. Yeah. Right. And, edited cleverly to, to be a single take. Yeah. And it wasn't just the gimmick. It, it, it was a show from a very, from a single perspective that just gave the, the energy and the franticness of what was yeah. happening around it, the filmmaking definitely added to that. So that was great. And then, it, yeah, and, and and all throughout, and the ending was certainly more satisfying than the ending of season two, which was kind yeah. of infuriating. And But I think there's something missing in the show now, and I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe I'm, it's the lack of utterly compelling characters like i i don't think and i i think i like the characters but they're i'm not just yeah fully into any of the characters anything close to like i was with breaking bad or with you know some of these real the uh with um with the with real wire the sopranos you know yeah there's nobody like that there's nobody even with who who's what was Steve Van Zant's name on The Sopranos? Oh, um, oh, God. <sighs> Fuck. God damn it. It's funny because you saying Steve Van Zant probably blocked me from the real name in that way. Where, uh, it's not Polly. Uh, it's. No. Um, Fuck. Anyway, like, like that level of I'm really. I, I, I care about this character Silvio. so much. You know, Silvio, Silvio that's right. Dante. That's right. Yeah. Silvio. So like there, um, there's a bunch of great performances. There's a new one by this actor, Bobby Cannavale. He's a new character called Irving. He's great. He's great. Grace Gummer is really good. It's just, there's something about them that like, I, I don't care quite enough about what happens to any of them. Yeah. So I was trying to tease apart whether, um, and, and, uh, Right before we started recording this, I I was saying that I might have to watch the I might have to binge watch this season again yeah. because I was trying to figure out whether it was just that I was having a particularly stressful semester and I didn't devote as much attention to the shows as I would normally like because in some ways I mean I, I think I'm underplaying it I, I in some ways this is arguably the best season. Um, in terms of just, I, I think again, like Sam Esmail's craft, I, like, I, I feel like this was a really, really strong season, but I can't help but agree with you that at some point you, you stop, stop caring about, uh, about Mr. Robot and the tension and, between him and Elliot and, and Angela's character sort of that was compelling to me before sort of lost some of that. Um, yeah, she has an arc certainly this season. Yeah, but, yeah, um, and you um, find out some stuff about her. But um, yeah, it's a it's a really it made me also realize just how hard it is to do a TV show because 
I, I don't think anybody was more on board with this show than I was, and then you, that you were too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, after the first season, we were the biggest proselytizers of it. We devoted yeah. multiple episodes to it. Yeah, and. And then season two happens, and it's not like it was terrible. There were some really good episodes in season two, but it, it it was a little bit of a misstep that like deflated the interest in the yeah. show. Clearly, like for the fans, because there was yeah. no buzz around this season while it was going on or before. And then you know now it's like it's it's we're at a point where it seems like we both are appreciating it more than loving it. And yeah. that's just, it's hard. Like how, how do you, how do you sustain a, a great <laughs> show? If even Mr. Robot not doing anything that wrong, just loses it. You know? I know. I know. I, I think there's a few things. Um, one is the, the, the promise of a sci-fi storyline underneath the surface kept a lot of the energy of the internet going right. on and it took a little bit of a backseat and, and we're still un, uh, we're still unsure i think what's going on um and and it, it's still in play yeah it's still in play and i and i think that's what you know the the just you know of course like the whatever hours i spent talking about it on the show on on very bad wizards was me fascinated by the possibility of that the, the parallel universe thing the potential time travel thing the Berenstein and, and bears do you remember like bear. that whole thing yeah and there were some other clues there was other clues this season that that was going on yeah um and so 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 i don't know i think i'm suspending my you know i think this is one of those things where i think this season was really really well done again with all the caveats that we that, that you were just mentioning and it might just turn on how they wrap it all up in this season. I think so, yeah. Season. And, <laughs> There's and so even a little end- meta sort yeah. of uh, in the last episode sort of. A, a, I mean, a, he brought it, brought it back around in a really great way, right? But he even explicitly says what matters is that you end with a bang. Like one of the characters says that. Um, right, that's right. And yeah. uh, I think that was Sam Esmail saying, like, just stick with it. So, yeah. yeah, if it has a kick-ass fourth season, and I really do think it should be the last season. Yeah. Uh, because the yeah. patience is wearing thin with, like, I don't know, not just the mystery. Like, even Darlene and her, no, no, like, no, you know, like, yeah. just, uh, I want, like, I want that fun, momentum, propulsive energy of the show to take us to a great ending that, like, is surprising and... And then yeah. I'll really, then I'll really appreciate the show. I, you know, I still think though that that um the, the, this the affect with which I'm discussing the show right now is result of my comparison of Mr. Robot to Mr. Robot. But like, it's still yeah some of the best TV on TV. And yeah, and I absolutely. will say that the acting this season was stellar. Like there were some moments of of just where where some of the some of these actors were amazing just uh, just amazing and and the tension came from their performances um um and so so there's a lot good like there's a lot that's great it's so so i'm hoping with you that it ends in season four and it ends wow. in a really yeah, in a really amazing way i have no idea how i would end it well i have no idea like what i would do to not 
err in one of two directions. One, the direction of banality that, that I fear it might lead to. And two, the direction of like, um, ridiculous, you know, lost sci-fi. Yeah. It's, I can't conceive of a way that it could end and satisfy. Yeah. So if it does that, it'll be, it'll be awesome. is, if there's one thing I can say about Esmail is that he is he seems to be he seems to know what he's doing. I'm, so I'm placing my faith in him. Like he he really seems to to have a plan um, for what he wants to do. So I'm hoping that plan. I, I hope so too. I, I he has an interview. <laughs> I just recommended this on the newsletter, but I'll give it to all of you listeners as a Christmas gift for free. There's a there's an episode of of some it's called Talk House where he interviews Mark Frost about the last season of Twin Peaks, this latest season of Twin Peaks, uh, which to me is so far and away the best like thing that I saw all year and probably in the last few years. I still I still have I have I have it downloaded. I haven't watched it. That's crazy. But yeah. it takes again. It takes. I think it's just because it takes a lot of time to watch David Lynch. It look takes, in like, the newsletter. I give you like a, a shortcut way. It's still you still have to watch like a lot of hours before you can start <laughs> yeah. the the new season. But um, yeah. Anyway, so there is a podcast where he's interviewing Mark Frost, and he's always on these shows. Like, and he's a really compelling guy. He's a fun guy. He goes on a podcast called the watch that i like a lot um with chris ryan and andy greenwald the ringer website uh, runs that podcast and and i like him i just yeah. you know so, uh, so it's well, hard to make a great it's like truly truly great like hall of fame tv show yeah yeah so so sam Esmail, i know you're listening come on to our show yeah come um, on to our <laughs> defense season two. all right all right We'll be right back with Paul Bloom. Uh, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We have Paul Bloom with us. Um, and we're going to talk about your article in The New Yorker on dehumanization. Paul, re- our last episode was actually about our favorite dystopian works of fiction. Just since we have you here and it's fresh in our mind, are there any other favorite dystopian works of fiction that you have? Or Oh, I don't know. You guys have talked about Huxley, about Orwell. Um, yeah. Yeah. Handmaid's Tale. You guys discussed that. We actually we, didn't. We, we uh, didn't. And I watched it. Uh, I actually didn't watch it. That's why I didn't discuss it. Tamler didn't discuss it because he's not a, a pro woman. He's not uh, a fan. I, of I, yeah, I recommended not, it on yeah. Very Bad Wizards <laughs> newsletter. Um, I thought it was good. You know, it wasn't spectacular, but it was I'm, very I'm, good. I'm bothered by the fact that that many people see this as um, analogous or worry about a political situation today. And it seems like the wrong dystopia to worry about. Um, there, there's not much evidence over last year of the Trump administration. We've been getting le- we've been getting increasingly repressive and 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 you know and fundamentalist. Yeah. Um, I think it's just different. I think basically the dystopia I have to worry about in the real world is a nuclear annihilation with a war with North Korea, and that'd be a sort <laughs> of a, sta- a standard uh, the road. It's type a very of brief dystopia, right? When yeah. when the the bombs are in the air. Yeah, you know, you see them coming down, and it's a sort of thirty-second dystopia. <laughs> this society is ironically unjust. So let's talk about this this article more broadly. So, what are you up to here? This yeah. feels like uh, that this is the beginning of something. I mean, in part the continuation of something, but also the beginning of a new project. So, can you give a just a brief summary of what it is that you're after in this article? 
So the article is about dehumanization and its critics. And the dehumanization claim, and the person I think who, who makes the best case for it is David Livingston Smith, um, who's just really brilliant scholar and does great work, um, is that a lot of the terrible things we do to each other, genocide, slavery, torture, um, is because we think of one another as less than human. We deny each other human traits. And there's a lot of subtleties into how that could happen. But um, the idea is, you know, when people who enslave others don't think of the slaves as human. People who kill others in war don't think of their enemies as human, not fully human anyway. And I don't think that that's wrong. I think that there's a lot of evidence that we do dehumanize people. There's textual evidence. There's historical evidence. There's psychological evidence that we really, for instance, when thinking about a despised group, we might think they lack certain secondary emotions and intelligence and feeling and so on. But the claim I make in my article, and this isn't original to me, I'm, I'm summarizing arguments of other people, is that a lot of the worst things we do to each other, the real cruelties, both at a global scale and you know, a more domestic scale, actually are precisely because we, we appreciate each other's humanity. And, you know, and, and this is a point, you know, Quame Anthony Appiah, the philosopher, uh, says, you think about the tortures and humiliations and degradations we commit to other people, you wouldn't do this. If you thought they were vermin, you wouldn't do this if you thought they right. were robots or objects. You do this because you think that they're people and you want them to suffer. You want to dominate them. You want to punish them. Even things like um, epithets, like um, you know, calling another person a dog. And well, so you could look at that and say, well, if there's dehumanization. You think that they're a dog. That's but not an insult, he, dog. Thanks for adding the discussion in a productive and useful way. But, but the language of dehumanization is often directed to humiliate and degrade people. And you know, as I say in the article, it actually proves the opposite. Yeah. If I scream at somebody, they're a pig or they're vermin, I wouldn't do that if I thought they really were a pig or vermin. What's the point? I scream at them this because I want to humiliate and shame them by making them think about something which they don't want to be. So – I'm wondering what it actually means to dehumanize somebody because you're obviously right that, you know, when my wife calls me a pig, as she often does, she's not assuming that I'm not human. She's saying something about like how messy I am, how disgusting I've left the house or something. Um, And she wants you to feel bad about it. Yeah. And she wants me to feel bad about it. And I think like you have a, uh, an example of, calling it a soccer game when they'll call black players monkeys or whatever they don't actually the whole point of that is to humiliate them with a racist term that and it would only work if they were human so i agree with that but then that that also makes me wonder what exactly when people talk about dehumanization do they mean it can't literally be that you don't consider them to be like a member of the Homo sapiens species, right? So, so that's a good question, and it varies what people. It, there's a lot of claims of what <clears throat> what could happen, and they aren't inconsistent. So, um, one version of dehumanization is we tend to think of people as more like um, non-human animals, as lacking to some degree specific human traits. Right. So you might say something like, well, you see those people there, they don't love, our, love their children like we love our children. Or right. they're not capable of higher order emotions. Right. You might think of them as lacking emotions and agency, 
So, so dehumanization is very related to what the feminist literature calls objectification, where you think of somebody not literally as an object. You know, yeah, you know right. they're people at some level, but they lack agency and, and moral responsibility and moral weight. So now there are some cases over history where people have literally wondered whether other oppressed groups were like monkeys or apes. Right. And like seem there's to often time believe that they were. There's a old-timey kind of uh, racism yep. where it almost seemed as if they didn't believe they had a soul um, yes. in the same yeah. way that white people had a soul. Yes, and, th- and that's another, another version, or whether they're natural slaves, quote-unquote. Right. And, and um, so in some way, I think that the, what they all have in common is, and this is the title of Smith's book, is thinking of somebody as less than human, as, as lacking some of the important traits that, that we humans possess. Yeah. And so your point is that that's not often what happens in some of our worst acts of violence or cruelty is that we consider them less than human. We consider them just as human as us. And therefore, um, and that's that's, in fact, why we are engaging in the act of violence. Yeah. And and so you could make distinctions. So, um, uh uh, Tage Ray and um, Alan Fisk have a book called Virtuous Violence, and there's also articles coming out from this too, where they distinguish between instrumental violence and, and moral violence. So some sort of violence we do to other people, in part, we, we, we're more likely to do it if you don't think of the person as a person. You know, you might need slave labor, you might need to clear out some land to put something in there. And you, it's just easier if you don't think of the person as a person. You're motivated to dehumanize. And there's real dehumanization. But a lot of violence is moral violence, where what you're doing is you think it's right. You think these people deserve it. You yeah. think you're, you know, you're, and so Kate Mann in her great book on misogyny argues a lot of, you know, the violence against women of all sorts isn't because these guys think women aren't people. It's because they're outraged at women. They feel humiliated. They feel dismissed. They feel they're not getting their due. They feel betrayed or abandoned or, or, and, and, these are this is what you feel towards a person so so you know i i agree with this much that that there are forms of i mean let's take just punishment which we wouldn't call cruelty or violence just normal regular punishment that is imposing some sort of negative sanction that we think you know the stripping of rights or the introduction of pain um and that does seem to require um that you accept the agency of an individual and their their actions as a moral uh, as a moral agent because or else they simply would not be capable of be of deserving that punishment so right. so to think of somebody as deserving um you you have to think of them as at least in some facet agentic i mean in some facet human but in the agentic sense maybe you know maybe the they important. have other qualities right yeah. maybe they have other qualities like they're dumber or whatever and that might not bother you <clears throat> right but um and i think this has to be the case for you know a lot of the way that um, say white supremacy or or Nazi Germany like how it gets off the ground right you when you blame the Jews for taking for for being conspiratorial and controlling money and media it's like super agency right it's not just agency right. it's like they are actually planning intending to harm and, and doing that and 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 maybe to some extent other conflicts start that way. Um, or one of the slogans of white supremacists these days, you will not replace us. Right. Which, right. which betrays an anxiety and, 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 and a real 
feeling of, of being under threat. Right. And they're taking our jobs like immigrants taking yeah. our jobs. Like it, it does require this. Um, but then so then there's what I want to talk a, a little bit about was whether or not. Take the psychopath. Right. When the psychopath, um, one of one of the things that is often used uh, to measure psychopathy, which that's on the psychopathy checklist, is is if kids engage in sort of cruelty toward animals. Um, <clears throat> that kind of cruelty toward, you know, like like a whatever, cru- crucifying a squirrel, right? Yeah. Um, that's that's uh, you know, I don't know if, whether that cruelty is less cruel by dint of it being an animal. I mean, is there is something about the capacity of the animal to feel pain that is critical to the cruelty? I don't know as, if, as a matter of fact, the psychopaths are, are experiencing that the animal is. But, but it's not as if they would have just as much fun crucifying a, a cardboard cutout of a squirrel, <laughs> right? I mean, they yeah. actually really seem to enjoy the, the, su- the suffering or, or at least not be bothered by the suffering, um, and, and that strikes me as just, just, you know, p- presumably you could do that with other human beings. You could appreciate that they are suffering, but nonetheless not care ab- about their humanity or about the, the aspects of their humanity that other people might normally care for. And so in that sense, you might be dehumanizing them, but, but you're not saying that they're not capable of feeling or suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think that for some sorts of cruelty, it's a very low bar. You know, you need you wouldn't be doing it to a cardboard cutout, but maybe you don't need to be fully human to right. get pleasure from the pain the other person is feeling. But then again, you, you have other sort of forms of cruelty involving humiliation and degradation and so on, which right. you wouldn't do to a squirrel, which, which you, you need a <laughs> full-blown person in front of you. Um, right. You know, or, or, or consider something like show trials. Where it's not enough just to throw somebody in prison, they have to stand up and confess their guilt. Right. They have to stand up. Even and the whole point of this is they know they're not guilty. If they knew they're guilty, where would the fun be? So is yeah. that? I mean, so you might consider a certain kind of punishment as cruel, um, because nowadays we have more refined sense of, of yeah. what is well metered punishment. But in all those examples, it seems to me that there was never a question as to whether those people were being dehumanized. Those people were never. The claim was 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 never really that 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 kind of cruelty that you know putting people in stocks in the middle of the town um, and having people throw fruit at them because of their public shame that everybody sort of understood that that kind that that's not the cruelty we're talking about we're talking usually at least for me we're talking about like you know genocide level yeah. um, I I think you're right but I think real disagreements come about when you look over history. Or actually current events with right. the world we live in now. And then we ask, what sort of cruelty do we find? So there's a lot of people who had the paradigm for the Holocaust that these were people who were, didn't think of the Jews as people, didn't think about them, were blindly obeying in a sort of Stanley Milgram sort of way. Right. And, and I think that that's, there's a deep truth there. But then there's another truth. And this is um, from the book, I think, by, by Goldhagen, Hitler's Willing Executioners, that a lot of the atrocities done during the Holocaust were done by people who really liked doing it and felt that they were doing the right thing. Right. So, so it might well be when I point out that sort of, a certain sort of cruelty, you say, well, okay, that involves seeing the other person as a person. I guess I would say that that sort of cruelty is more common 
than, yeah. than one might think. So that's, I guess that's the question. And I, the, the quote that you give of, from Kate Mann's book, I thought was interesting. So she says, seeing someone as human as having rationality, agency, autonomy, and judgment. And she says, and, and you quote this, moreover, in, in being capable of rationality, agency, autonomy, and judgment, they are also someone who could coerce, manipulate, humiliate, or shame you. In being capable of abstract relational thought and congruent moral emotions, they are capable of thinking ill of you and regarding you contemptuously. In being capable of forming complex desires and intentions, they are capable of harboring malice and plotting against you. They may value what you abhor and abhor what you value. They may hence be a threat to all that you that you cherish. And and what I take her to be saying there is it's their very humanity that it is justifying your violence towards them in their mind. So their humanity is necessary to provide a moral justification for how you are treating um, yeah. these people. Their, their humanity grounds, you, grounds your actions. It provokes them. It justifies them. Maybe the big theme of my article is that the problem of being good people to one another is much harder than some people think. So there are some people, um, Simon Baron Cohen often writes this way, where if you just say, if we only recognize the humanity of others, fully understood they're just like us, We'd be so much nicer to each other. And I think, yeah, we'd be a bit nicer to each other. But in some ways, a lot we'd be still terrible to each other. And, and right. then a second theme of my article, which connects to stuff you guys have talked about, is it provides a certain way of looking at certain cruelties in everyday life, like the sexual harassment thing, which a lot of it came to Weinstein and everything came out after I, I got my first draft and so I didn't include it. But... It seems to me that you, you look at Harvey Weinstein, the specifics, or, or other people. Let's focus on Weinstein as the most central example. And, you know, he did all these awful, humiliating things to women. And it's tempting to think that he did it in order to get sex from them. It's kind of means to an end. But, some of the, but I don't think that's the right analysis entirely. I think part of it, and Roxanne Gay makes a similar point, part of it is the humiliation and degradation is the point. Right. You know, if he could have had cheerful, willing, happy, consensual sex, it's not really what he was after. Right. right. He didn't want sex with people who were right. enthusiastic and free. He didn't want a cardboard cart. He didn't want a cardboard cutout. Right. He wanted a squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I mean, yeah. Out, of, out of context, that, that sounds <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> right. Obviously, there's nuance here, right? Like, there's there are ways in which you can raise or lower particular aspects of somebody's humanity their agency or their you know in this very kurt gray kind of way what what aspect of their of their humanity are you pointing out their capacity for suffering or or their capacity for moral agency animals can suffer they don't have much moral agency robots have a ton of agency they can't suffer much humans are at that sweet spot um one question is is really i think what one of the ways in which i might summarize the theme of your article is that if you want to understand how to get genocide off the ground, you're going to have to do a lot more than just call people monkeys or pigs, right? You're going to have to build a, a coherent story of what people deserve because of what they've done. And in doing so, you're going to have to play the game of, of the, as you, as you refer to them, the, the reactive attitudes. Build up the blame, build up the agency and the fault, and then... Yeah. And then make arguments for why perhaps 
<clears throat> collective responsibility for the actions, um, like in say in the case of Jews uh, during the Holocaust, where yeah, you might be an innocent little girl in a red dress, but you are collectively part of the agents who have done this to our That's right, wonderful- and 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 there are things you could do. The, the two aren't incompatible. You might make the moral case against a group to motivate war and genocide. But as you're right. marching people to the gas chambers, it may be you'll, it helps to dehumanize them to get you know your 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 otherwise rather timid citizens to do right. much. That's what, I think that's right. It's like a two-step process for genocide where yeah. where the 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 normal people that the quote unquote normals that have to find themselves in this doing the task of mass mass murder might actually be helped out by completely toning down on the equalizer any thoughts of this person as as being like me or or being capable of of the same thoughts and feelings and desires and and just to build off what you're saying to me one of the worst things that trump has done out of a series of bad things not in its effects but but in what was going on with it was maybe a couple weeks ago week two weeks ago he retweeted videos of specific muslims like beating up some kid destroying a statue of the virgin mary and that's that's textbook of what you're talking about, which is yeah. you say, look at these people. They're evil people. They're hurting other. They're they're mocking your religion. Right. It's making a case against the group. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So let me raise an objection that is based on something that Dave and I have talked about a lot on the show, although not for a while. Is this book? On killing um, that we both read a long time ago about how the army trains their soldiers and 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 I think he's arguing that the way they do this is a to dehumanize the enemy to get them to to see the enemy and 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 feel like it's more of a video game, less like um, an actual person in front of you. And and so when they start training them, you know, instead of using real human people, they use targets or they'll use, you know, just a cardboard cutout um, because it's actually really hard to kill another unique human being. And so they build, they kind of ingrain this dehumanized uh, understanding of the enemy into the soldiers. And so a couple of things. One, that just seems – so it's it's a contrary thesis to what it is that you're arguing. But it also makes me ask whether one element of dehumanization isn't – doesn't even involve not thinking them of having agency or not thinking of them as having feelings – but just as lacking individuality. So one element of dehumanization is you just see them as just a mass of people. One is indistinguishable from the other. They're, yeah, they're human, but they're all indistinguishable. Like a true, like a true utilitarian. Yeah. Like a true utilitarian. Exactly. Right. (laughs) And, and, and I, and I think that's sort of the, the element of dehumanization that, that, the author of On Killing is talking about. Yeah, I think all of that's true. I think I think that that, that I think you're right to point out. And, and the psychologists working on dehumanization, I don't think look at it quite that way. And maybe they should. They often think about lacking certain traits. But you know, basically, you think you know they're, what they're Africans, they're Jews, they're Muslims, and right. and you don't think of them as individuals. You, you, while your own group, of course, is consists of these 
in, infinitely different and special right. individuals. I think that's a good part of it. And I, and, and, and I don't deny – it was David Grossman yes. who wrote yeah. the book? Yeah. 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 I don't deny the truth of Grossman's analysis. I don't know what to make of it in general. So he and a lot of other people say it's really hard to kill people and really hard right. to harm people. But then you, you read about like the Rwandan genocide – yeah, and it didn't seem that hard. These these people didn't go through special months of careful training. They just picked up their machetes and went at each other. There's a lot of historical cases where people really have at each other, and they don't seem to be inhibited. Yeah. And then going back to the Kate Man thing, it's not so clear that that many men have enormous inhibitions against striking women they live with. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 it might be the answer to this is that Grossman is right about anonymous strangers. We just have the inhibition about striking an anonymous stranger. Maybe, maybe one yeah. that's evolved because it's very costly to attack a stranger. But when you're in a relationship with people, neighbors, friends, community, intimate relationships, or whether they're a sort of hated outgroup, things change quickly. That's interesting. Right. Yeah, I, I, that is interesting. I, I think that um, I mean, one of the things that that Grossman points out is that that, you know, the tools are really like s- super simple conditioning to get people to react very quickly. One thing is seems certain if you accept the data that and I do um, is that we have traditionally not ha- had much problem being murderous beasts to each yeah. other. And the question really that that intrigues me is how have we become how how are we even in the position of of thinking that the thing to be explained is violence <laughs> right when it when it's been the norm and I think that in some ways we have not been exposed to the kind of violence that other males of our age probably would have been exposed to throughout human history, and therefore we you know I almost <laughs> I would almost argue that there's probably a, 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 a sensitive period in which being exposed to the, that sort of violence, and perhaps the analogy is to hunting. Right? I don't think I'd make for a good hunter now, but you go out when you're three years old with your dad, yeah. when you're five years old with your dad, and you learn that you shoot deer even when they're looking at you in the eye, um, and and then it's not traumatizing. Now you know. Now I almost run over a squirrel, and my daughter freaks out. She thinks, yeah. you know, this is this is murder, and that can't be the the norm for our species. Right? Yeah, I, I talked about this in terms of sort of an evolved negative reaction to attacking a stranger, but you might be right. It might be so much a product of culture. It may right. be through, you know, over a decade of careful socialization that we develop a, a repugnance. It's like, you know, like a, you develop a repugnance of sticking your tongue into an electrical socket. Right. You know, right. because this is just pushed into you. Don't, don't hit people. Don't hit people. Yeah. And, um, and of course, this connects with with Tamler's uh, forthcoming book on honor. He basically feels this this anger that we're assuming this is all a good thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it can be a good thing. So wait, there was something. Now you got me thinking about my book and the way that it's connecting <laughs> to all of this. But um, you realize you have a typo on. Oh, <laughs> so oh no, yes. Yeah. So one thing to connect the points that you guys uh, w- were just making, it could be that for people who have been socialized as as you know, Dave and I and Paul have, that it really is hard. Like, it's not easy for me to hit a woman. Like it would be really, really hard for me to do that. It's not easy for me to engage in most acts of violence that other people seem to engage in 
all the time, I would have to overcome a lot. Maybe for this group of people, some this process of dehumanization like they do in the military is necessary, whereas for other people, it wouldn't be. For people who right. have been socialized differently, that would be uh, that would be just unnecessary and redundant and may even make make them less prone to violence in some way. Right. And, and you know, one part I wanted to put in the article, um, but ended up just for reasons of space having to take it out, was there's often good things about dehumanization. It's something like dehumanization where you don't focus on people's human qualities, <laughs> but you treat them in a more abstract way. And this was this is re- the real connection with your book on honor, because it seems from your description that honor societies are intensely sensitive to the humanity of other people. Right. Um, and I'm not sure that's such a good thing all the time. Um, you know, you in an honor society, you insult me. I take it to heart. Yeah. I worry about it. I, it festers. I wonder what other people are, are feeling and everything. Well, um, you know, in a, in a culture of dignity or saying you might insult me. Ah, who cares? Uh, you know, some, some rand, some, you know, some rando who cares? Cause you're isolated, alienated atoms. You say that as if it's a bad thing. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, look, it's it's uh, it's a spectrum. Certainly not that taking things personally is always a good thing. That is definitely not my argument in the book, but more that we've erred too far in the other direction, where we don't care what anybody we don't care what anybody thinks of us, and that leads to behavior like uh, that is increasingly shameless. If we're so disconnected from the opinions of other people and insults can't harm us, then, you know, just based on how human psychology is wired up, we're not going to be motivated to act in ways that will meet with anybody's approval but our own. We'll, we'll have this conversation closer to when that comes out. Right. It's interesting. I'm thinking about, you know, we, we started off talking about um, the war child organization that that's these kids who have been, you know, through horrible shit in war-torn Africa. And there is a way in which humanizing them and respecting them as, as you know, each individual with pains and, and individual histories that are to be valued is the sort of thing I want in the people who are working with those individuals. And yet there's another part where I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to Paul's, Paul's crazier claims um, that, that if you're acting sort of from a bird's eye view, you, 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 want to maximize simply like really like something like the Jacobs Foundation. You, you you want to take money and give to the most maximally uh, beneficial charity. You sort of just can make a spreadsheet and decide on that basis. And that might be the better way to decide. I'm sort of just rehashing yeah, Paul, what I, Paul I, has said. And, and <clears throat> of course, this is an argument I made in a, in, in a different context, which is right. sometimes zooming in on the individual traits of people leads you to moral mistakes and you know it, it 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 leads to it it allows for all sorts of bias it makes you enumerate because often and often thinking right. about numbers is morally important and right. and this is one of the reasons why dehumanization is never good people are people and you should know that but sometimes you don't need to think about the humanity of the person when dealing with them and you know i quickly go through some examples in my article one kate Mann points out as well is a surgeon Right. So, um, so you know, who often treats a body, uh, you know, a patient as a, a body as a problem. There's all sorts of ways in which I want my doctor 
or my surgeon not to think of me as a person. I don't want uh, sexual arousal. I don't want anger. I don't want right. disapproval. I just want him to, you know, treat me with some kindness and fix my problem. Yeah, be like, a, way. like a car. Like I want you to like yeah. repair my car, except yes. it's right. me. And um, Martha Nussbaum gives the example of sex, which is a very, very interesting case, which people might have differing intuitions. Where she she talks about objectification and says that some objectification is okay under certain circumstances if you could if you have implied consent. For instance, right. so her example, her um, her you know PG example is um, is using her her partner's uh, stomach as a pillow while he sleeps. Right. You know, he, she's using him as an object. To, this is to, a, to, as a as a Kantian, I'm abhorred, morally abhorred by this. <laughs> <laughs> He's a means to an end. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, that's that's okay. Yeah. The biggest criticisms that people make of Peter Singer is precisely that he dehumanizes people and. You know, and I and I think, and you, and he's a good example of what you're talking about of maybe the benefits of doing that. But of course, Peter Singer doesn't think that the people whose lives that he's either saving or sacrificing are not human. But he is really just focused on maximizing the yeah. sum total of the welfare in 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 the world and that's the thing so, that he's focused on now that to so, me is so dehumanization not whether it's good or bad is a separate question so there's different ways of slicing it up sort of you're viewing dehumanization in a sense where it could be good and um and so you know you could have good ends and that's a fine way to use the word. I, I would sort of do it in a different way, which is dehumanization is to deny certain human traits for people who have who possess those human traits. It's a mistake. And you know, and the psychological scales involve, you know, asking people, okay, for blacks or for Muslims, you know, to what extent do they feel sympathy or 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 nostalgia or anxiety or anger? And you find when there's dehumanization, people say less, 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 less. The primary emotions remain like anger maybe, but right. the secondary emotions drop. To what extent do they, do they have deep, men, how smart are they and so on. So from that view, dehumanization is just making a mistake and you shouldn't make mistakes. But I accept there's a broader view which is not thinking about the humanity people you deal with and in which case Peter Singer does it and I do it and I think we should all do it. But wait, Paul, so I'm, now I'm confused because in your example of the doctor – I thought that was an example of the doctor dehumanizing you. And the doctor is still aware that you have all these yeah. traits. So what now I'm confused about how you're defining it. I'm I'm saying that something like dehumanization. Oh, uh, okay. But not and again, I, I, I don't care how we use right. the word, but there's a there's a world of difference between me thinking that you don't you're you you don't have feelings versus I do something involving you. Um, like using you to block out the sun in a, where it's standing in a crowd, where I'm not thinking about your feelings. I see. The first is bad. The second thing is okay sometimes. So, so what you're saying is like objectifying can be something that isn't dehumanization. Those yes. are two and different things. Suspending your thoughts of, of yes. the, the suffering yeah. of a patient is necessary. And it's complicated. So take commercial interactions like dealing with a waiter or a barista or auto mechanic and so on. You want to treat the person as a person. You should. If not, you're an asshole. But on the other hand, you don't need to revel in the full humanity of the person. They probably don't want you to. Right. 
you know, if, if, if when, when you strike up a conversation with the waiter, you know, he's got a lot of other tables. Right. He just wants right. you to, right. you know, take your order, give you your food, get a tip, whatever. And, and you're not going to like say, so how are you? And I mean, really, how are you? <laughs> and it's inappropriate. <laughs> right. This is my, but, my Larry David moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what does puzzle me though is, and how to get into the mindset of say a slave owner 200 years ago who is dealing talking to one of his slaves like seeing their emotional reaction having them ask for leniency or something and nonetheless uh nonetheless being cruel and and I think like you that calling that dehumanization is a cop out. I think there's something else going on. I think there is something where there it's not they're not being doctors uh plus something else, right? They're, they they are actually they have just sincerely stopped caring about that particular human. Like yeah. I, and I don't know how to describe that. I, I don't think it's a it, it's you know, these are people who pre- presumably would have empathy for their family and who who if they call the person vermin or an animal they don't like they certainly don't mean it in any deep way nonetheless right. they just view them as deserving by dint of being african d- deserving this treatment um yeah i i it's a great question i don't know yeah. you know and the literature is unclear on it i think there's probably a lot of individual differences right. and also the history of slavery often we we enslave groups we view as to some in some way or some of us view as subhuman and that's part of history but there's been a long history of slavery involving you know your country and my country are at war the side that wins enslaves the losers yeah right and and i wonder when people do do they think of the of them automatically becoming subhuman or do they just say dude you lost the coin toss right you know now you're my slave (laughs) so okay i can i take a Totally. I mean, it's related, but there's a question that I was asked by a student. Paul, you teach intro psych. Um, It relates to this a little bit. Do psychopaths blush? I got to say, I have such a problem with the whole, a lot of discussions (laughs) about psychopaths involve a sort of imaginary philosophical class of people. Like a zombie. Um, And (laughs) yeah. And so often in the real world with psychopaths are simply awful people. Um, I, I don't think, I I think you would imagine psychopaths don't blush because one of the sort of diagnostic features, one of the generalizations you make of them is that they're shallow. So it's not that they lack emotions. This is a checklist original thing. That's exactly right. Right. So, so so they, it's not like they don't get, they don't get angry and they get afraid. They get pissed off at you and and they do all, they have emotions, but, but but this particular social emotion. To feel ashamed. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so, you know, I, 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 again, they're a psychopath and they're a psychopath, but I think the paradigmatic psychopath, no, wouldn't blush. (laughs) Right. That's a good title for a book, Dave. Do psychopaths blush? (laughs) That's a bestseller right there. Or or, or a a novel, Psychopaths Don't Blush. (laughs) One of the things that I think people think about psychopaths is that they are – they're just more willing to use people as mere means to an end – than than we are right this is the stereotype that they don't they don't really regard the other person as if 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 that other person and 
torturing them or doing whatever is a means to a certain end, then you're just going to do it, an end that you desire. <laughs> There's a in the Tej Rye, Jesse Graham and Pierre Carlo and and Val mm-hmm. Pierre Pierre, Pierre Carlo <laughs> Val de Solo Val de Solo. Yeah. This will all be edited out. You yeah. just call him Car- Carlo, yeah. <laughs> uh, Carlo. They they have this distinction that we briefly touched on about the difference between moral violence and instrumental right. violence. One yeah. of the things that struck me about that distinction, which I think is a really good one, the kind of violence that you think that you're doing because you think it's the right thing to do and the kind of violence that's just a means to a certain end that you might even regret so they talk about like drone strikes in Iraq, for example. You don't think the people who might suffer collateral damage deserve to suffer collateral damage. You're you will you're you support them because you think it's important to defeat ISIS or something like that. The study they did, people who are more prone to dehumanize others are more willing to engage in instrumental violence. It struck me that a lot of the violence that goes on in society, and this is, is instrumental violence. And, right. you know, one of the things that Pinker's book doesn't consider violence, but that you might, is mass incarceration, Right. Yeah. But if it is a kind of violence, I think it's often a kind of instrumental violence to just keep the streets safer. You know, all right, there's got to be a lot of there's got to be a huge prison complex, but at least I don't have to worry about getting mugged. And then drone strikes is, yeah. you know, the, the biggest example of this. It seems like maybe a lot of the violence is is like this. And if dehumanization makes that more tempting or it makes it easier to stomach, then that would be a bad thing, right? I think you're right. I think also uh, another example of something which is a bit, I always seem to be in a bit of tension with with, uh, Pinker's argument is treatment of non-human animals, mass factory farming. Exactly. Now, they aren't human to start with, but I think this sort of instrumental violence, I I don't want animals to suffer, I just want my chicken. Yeah. is is made possible by not thinking about their agonies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I I don't know where I would put on the scale the relative contribution to these different forms of violence. Um, as David said earlier on, I think once you see the sort of cruelty we're talking about, you could often pinpoint what's going on, whether it's humanization or dehumanization. Yeah. Mass incarceration is complicated um, yeah. because to some extent I think it is also moral violence. You know, you see this in discussions. If there's ever a case where empathy is limited, it's in a crusade to stop prison rape or abuse hmm. in prison. Yeah, where, right. You know, I've read things where people describe in, in harrowing detail the horrors of prison rape. And then in a comment section, the first comment is always, good. Right. <laughs> These people deserve it. Right. And, you know, it, it's an acquiescence to violence for, you know, putatively moral reasons. But I think a lot of people are just indifferent to it. It's not – I think there is a certain subset of people who are glad that everybody, you know, is in prison because they deserve it for what they violated. But I think like with factory farms, yeah. most people are just indifferent to what's going on because they don't really – think about it you know it's just yeah there's a bunch of people in prison but i don't actually think about what that would entail including things like like prison rape and if you just walk somebody through the day and you know this is what some podcasts and documentaries you know it it, they completely change their mind and that 
it it makes them want to fight against you know the war on drugs and the various other elements that that lead to it Jonathan Glover in his book on humanity uh, as philosopher really incredible discussion of the evils we do to each other reprints a letter that this um, woman in Germany sent Uh, she lived she had the bad luck to live next to a death camp Hmm. and and she said you know Basically, can you quiet things down there? It's it's really it really bothers me. Something like these atrocities shouldn't be done, or if they're to be done, have to be done in some place that's not so close to my house. <laughs> like it's wow. like a like a club playing loud music or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, the screams of children don't exactly haunt me. They just make it harder for me to fall asleep. <laughs> so so I I you know I I wouldn't disagree with what you're saying that. A lot of terrible things happen, but through dehumanization. And then again, you know, a lot of the wars we get into, um, and and actually zooming in, a lot of individual acts of cruelty seem to be involved in more humanizing things. So this is this is Kate Mann's claim about misogyny, and and if she's right, she's talking about you know a form of violence that you know affects roughly you know half the world. Yeah, I'm, victims. I'm, I'm, I'm most sympathetic to this claim that, that misogyny or acts of violence against women can't really be dehumanizing. I mean, it's, it's, it's really the case that, that <laughs> the survival of our species depends on, on accepting that they are, that, that men accepting that women are humans in a really deep fundamental way. Whatever is going on with misogyny, I think is, is very, very complex and can't be boiled down to, I don't think of this person as a person. I mean, yeah. very often these people share their hopes and dreams and desires with these other human beings, right? It would be a weird claim to say that, but right before I hit you, I think of you as vermin. Um, yeah, no, I think that's probably almost exceptionally true that individual acts of violence probably most of the time don't involve dehumanization or... Yeah, I guess it's are just pre- yeah because yeah. a lot of them are probably just pure acts you know weakness of the uh, acratic responses like I got angry and I hit somebody right that's probably what a lot of this this comes down to and it's not that it requires a particular view of the other person at all it only requires your own succumbing to your to your emotional response I mean in some ways per- the, perhaps the fact that you have that emotional response is is indicative that you think of the other person as an agent deserving to be punched. But I don't even think that that's the case. I mean, people kick their dogs all the time, right? I mean, this is just probably most violence is just a lack of willpower. Yeah, you make that connection, Paul. I wanted to ask you about that, which is like one of the things in in the the three books that you discuss that you say they don't really talk about is the fact that many of the— Many of our acts of violence, we don't really feel like we have full control over and we come to feel ashamed of or we we regret. How does that connect to this um, discussion? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it really is complicated and you could imagine different things happening. So so I might, you know, be cruel to somebody and then feel bad about it. And, you know, it's it's it's. it's one thing I complain about the books I'm reviewing is they they often fall into a pattern of assuming that everyone is sort of cheering on their own cruel actions. But but we have to, we have capacities to to look at things from a third party. And you know a, a father might you know smack around his son and feel at the time this is what the kid deserves. This will help him. 
But then, you know, feel like, geez, did I go too far? And maybe I, maybe there was another way to do it and feel honestly ambivalent. And from there, there's different routes. You might decide to be a better person. Yeah. You know, you may, you may go to your son or you go to your spouse and say, I'm, I, I feel terrible for what I did. Why do you make so me on. hit you? <laughs> <laughs> you may uh, uh, humanize them more and say, you know, God, what they did was really terrible. It was really deserving. Or, and this is an interesting pathway, you may then dehumanize them. So, so one claim which seems what people make is a lot of dehumanization done uh, in, you know, in the Holocaust, for instance, were done by the perpetrators of evil trying to deal with their own, you know, it's like doubts. dissonance reduction. Dissonance reduction. That's like right. Dissonance. That's right. right. Okay, I did. I did it to them, but they aren't people anyway. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, a, a lot of people. Yeah, that's interesting. That a lot of dehumanization might come after the fact. As a sort of public campaign to get everybody to be okay with what what what's happened, right? Like, yeah. um, what I took like you a, to be yeah. sort of suggesting is that this you, you're fighting against this idea that if people just viewed other people as human, then violence would stop right away and cruelty, acts of cruelty would stop. And I think to the extent that people believe that, that doesn't seem well-founded at all. But I wonder, you know, how that connects to this idea of control and and loss of control. Do you think that if people stopped erroneously assuming the, the mistaken cause of violence, that would enable them to acquire more control over their behavior and behave less violently? I think some violence, a lot of it is due to loss of control. You know, you get if you know the the connection between alcohol and violence is a very right. strong correlation, for instance. And in fact, the sort of person who has low self control in other aspects of his or her life is likely to be more violent. But I think a lot of looking moral violence is done by somebody who thinks it out, plans in advance, before and after, totally comfortable. And so, I think the loss of control maybe in some way captures is is an additive plays an additive role. But um, but no, I think a lot of moral violence is contemplative and justified after the fact. And um, yeah, it, I mean, to some extent, if it, this ever became a book or something, it'd be a nice a nice counterpoint to your book, Tamler, because because um, it would be arguing about the perils of recognizing the humanity of others. Yeah, right. That's the most polite way of saying I could write a whole book arguing that you're wrong uh, kind of statement. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a fair form of, of flattery. I mean, it is a compliment. You know, right. Oh, I'd the, be psyched. The, the, the <laughs> great, the, the, Fire away. I mean, I, I urge you to write a book that just views itself as responding <laughs> to my book. That would be tear it apart. It would, could only be good for the book. The title I, will be Honor Schmoner. <laughs> 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 Maybe not. Uh, Fuck honor. <laughs> Fuck honor. That's right. All right. Well, Paul, that was fun and interesting and provocative as usual. Yeah. You are hands down the best Very Bad Wizards guest. It was a pleasure. Ever. Pleasure talking <laughs> to you guys. They, you are the standard by which other guests are measured. It's not like, oh, they're a better it's like by definition you can't be a better vbw guest than Paul so Blue. kind so kind yes. 
<laughs> no one listens to the end, so no one's going to hear this. So it, it <laughs> does right. mean a lot. It's not like a book, Paul. A lot of people are falling asleep and then they wake up like oh, right I for see. the end. <laughs> You're getting this sort of sleep apnea crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? Yeah. Or, let's, but let's, sometimes let's, it just goes ingrained into their subconscious. That's right. I do that. I fall asleep sometimes to podcasts, and I wonder to what extent that has an effect on. Well, it's Brave New World. What does it call it? Like Hypnopedia. Hypnopedia. That's right. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye.